Good morning, Grace Orange. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. How exciting it is to open up God's Word together today. Today we are in Acts 9, 32 to 43. And we are going to see how the power of Jesus to heal and save is manifested as His people lovingly engage others with the gospel. So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 32 to 43, Acts chapter 9. This is the Word of God. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Thank you, Lord, that you heal that you save, and that you use believers for your purposes. Lord, open our eyes to the truth today. Change us by your Spirit through your Word. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If there is something everyone seems to know about Jesus, it is that He heals and that He saves. It shouldn't surprise us, but in all the distractions of life, it is very easy to get calloused to the truth that Jesus heals and Jesus saves. We get calloused to the fact that Jesus does amazing things. 
What he does is pretty amazing stuff. What we just read about a man who was in bed for eight years, unable to move, being raised up out of that bed, and a woman who was dead being brought back to life. Jesus heals and saves. In Luke chapter 6, we read that a huge crowd of Jesus' disciples and a bunch of people from all over come to hear Jesus, and they come to be healed of their diseases. It says that those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And it tells us that all the crowd were trying to touch Jesus. The reason was because power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus heals. He also saves. In Acts chapter 2, we read that 3,000 people in one day get saved. They, they come to faith in Christ. They're freed from the power and penalty of sin because of faith in the shed blood of Christ. That number jumps to 5,000 and more, upwards to ten to 15,000 people in a short amount of time becoming believers in Christ. Jesus saves. Acts chapter 9, Jesus saves Saul. The church's public enemy, number one, becomes its best friend. We're not surprised that Jesus has the power to heal and to save. We just can't comprehend it. We can't wrap our minds around it. We have trouble comprehending it, and and I do believe we get calloused to the fact that he does such amazing things. Acts 9 32 to 43 shows us the power of Jesus to heal and save. And it shows us how that it is manifested as his people lovingly engage others with the gospel. Jesus heals Aeneas. Jesus raises Dorcas. And many people are saved. Don't miss that. Aeneas is healed, Dorcas is raised, and many people are saved. From Acts chapter 8, verse 4, all the way to chapter 12, verse 25, we see the beginnings of the church's mission to the Gentiles. Acts 8, 4 through 40, Philip reaches Samaritans. Philip reaches an Ethiopian man. Acts 9, 1 through 30, Saul is saved. Immediately he starts serving Christ and starts suffering for the name of Christ. And now, from chapter 9, verse 32, all the way to chapter 11, verse 18, we see Peter doing missions work in Palestine. Last week we saw in Acts 9, 23 to 31, how the gospel changed everything for Saul. He who destroyed Christians became one and then began immediately preaching the gospel and immediately suffering for the name of Christ. And we saw four outcomes. How the gospel changes everything even though everything in your life isn't changed yet. The gospel takes you from being an enemy of God to his friend. That the gospel builds up the church. That the gospel gives you the fear of God, not the fear of man. And the gospel gives you comfort in the Holy Spirit. And boy, do we need comfort. 
Now what happens is the focus is shifting from Saul back to Peter. We haven't seen Peter in a little while. And now Luke is preparing us to hear what we're going to see next week in chapter 10. The conversion of a Gentile household of Cornelius. I love that guy. He's an Italian. What you see Peter doing is he's ministering to new believers in Samaria. He goes back to Jerusalem for a short while and then doesn't stay in Jerusalem but begins going out into the cities and the villages and ministering to people and sharing the gospel. Now on a macro level, on the, on the big umbrella level, this passage is continuing to basically track the growth of the gospel out from Jerusalem Exactly to where Jesus said it would go, Acts 1.8, to the ends of the earth. So that's what you see on a macro level here. But on the micro level, we see how Jesus uses believers as he heals and saves. The power of Jesus to heal and save manifested as believers lovingly engage others with the gospel. You see, Aeneas healed. That's the first thing we see in this passage, verses 32 to 35. And then you see Dorcas raised, verses 36 to 43. You see Peter interacting both with Aeneas and Dorcas, meets them at the point of need, and as a result, you see many people come to faith in Christ. So let's first look at the first part, Aeneas being healed. Verse 32 tells us that Peter is taking the gospel to people all over the place, and he comes to a place called Lydda, and there are believers there. We don't hear how the believers got there. But it could have been the dispersed Christians through the scattered through the persecution. It could have been Philip preaching the gospel to them. We don't know. All we know is there is in a place where mostly there were Jewish people, there are now believers in Jesus. And they're in a place called Lydda. That's known as Lod in the Old Testament. It's 11 miles southeast of Joppa, which is modern-day Tel Aviv. The main road from Jerusalem to Joppa went through Lydda. And the city had been reached with the gospel. And there's believers there. And Peter, verse 33, finds a paralyzed man there. His name is Aeneas. Names are important to God, by the way. If you're going through and reading the Bible through with us this year, it's day 59. I'm sure you're all caught up. But some of you probably got bogged down when you got to long lists of genealogies, and you might even be tempted to say, I don't like those. By the way, I love them. And and maybe my perspective on it will help you. The reason I love them is because every time I read a name in the Bible, I am reminded that that is a soul a real soul that is represented by that name. Not just hypothetical, oh, you know, someone might have been named this or that. Real people with real names that God knew and he wanted to record their names forever in the word of God. So he finds a paralyzed man named Aeneas. This man had been in bed for eight long years. That's really hard for us to fathom. Laying in bed, helpless, hopeless, for eight years. In those days, if you are 
having paralysis, uh, par- if you're paralyzed, excuse me, or you are diagnosed with some kind of sickness, you really had no way to get help. You were truly helpless and hopeless, and that's not the way it is now. If you're paralyzed, it's not the way it is now, but of course, back then it was. And here's this man who, for eight years, was stuck in bed, couldn't move, and Peter's at his house. Verse 34 says that he talks to him. Well, obviously, he's got to be in the room he's staying. This man couldn't go to the door and greet him. And he says to him, Aeneas. And then he makes a pronouncement. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter was not saying that Jesus might heal you or Jesus can heal you. He was saying, right that very moment, Jesus heals you. Real time. Immediately the man gets up and is healed. Peter declares Aeneas healed by the power of Jesus Christ on the spot. Jesus Christ heals you. It's not an if or a maybe. This is a fact. And what you want to notice is that Peter didn't use any secret formula or ritual. He's not a magician. He's not a shaman like Simon the magician. He is an agent of the living, risen, returning Lord Jesus Christ. Powerful Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, rise and walk is a cruel, cruel command without Jesus. Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. Get yourself something to eat. Go about your life. You're healed. Power to heal is not Peter's. Very clearly, it's not Peter's. It was Jesus' power to heal. Jesus Christ heals you. Now, this passage is not about principles of, of prayer for healing. But there are some things we can glean from this. First, focus on Jesus, not yourself. And realize you don't have the power to heal. Only Jesus does. Stuff like that. Proclaim the name of Jesus. Peter proclaimed the name of Christ. By the way, we've seen this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Missionary doctors go out to foreign fields who have been to medical school and who carry the gospel. And they go to help people with their physical ailments and preach the gospel of the grace of God and, and deal with their eternal ailment because of their sin. You don't see them saying, you know, I don't need medical school. I'm just going to go with the gospel and heal everybody. I love the fact of, of, of a missionary doctor who goes with the skill that God has given them to help people temporarily and then brings the gospel that can help you eternally. Verse 35 tells us what happened. The result. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon. Sharon is a plain, an area, like a big valley area. Basically, everybody in the whole area saw him. He's not in his bed anymore. He's not stuck at home anymore. And they see him. They, they know who he is and what happened to him. And it tells us that they turned to the Lord. 
that a bunch of people got saved because God used the healing to bring people to Jesus that's why Aeneas was healed God is authenticating the miracle through the apostles primary purpose of the miracle was for the sake of the gospel and Aeneas gets healed Jesus Christ heals you because Jesus heals and then you see Dorcas raised from the dead. That, he doesn't just get healed. Aeneas doesn't just get healed. Now you've got someone getting raised from the dead. Verse 36 tells us that we're now in Joppa. And there's a disciple named Tabitha, which means Dorcas. Joppa is the very same seaport from which Jonah boarded a ship to flee from the mission that God had given him to preach repentance to the Ninevites. And he gets on a boat in the seaport of Joppa and flees to Tarshish. I love the fact that that God gives Peter a, a mission in Joppa. He is not running from the Lord. He is leaning into the mission that God has given him. And Joppa is 35 miles northwest of Jerusalem, 11 miles northwest of Lydda. It was the main port for all of Jerusalem and all of Judea. Ancient Joppa, or Jaffa as it was known as, was located within the modern city of Tel Aviv. That's where you would, you would know where that is now. And in Joppa, there's this disciple named Tabitha, or Dorcas. Tabitha is the Hebrew Aramaic name. Dorcas is the Greek name. Both names mean the same thing. Gazelle. A gazelle has large, bright eyes. And this word Tabitha in Hebrew and Dorcas in Greek comes from a word meaning to see clearly. And she was a disciple. It's the only time in the New Testament that the feminine form of the word disciple is used. And Dorcas was a helper. Dorcas was a giver, not a taker. And she sewed clothes for widows, those who couldn't pay her back. She was gracious. She was filled with love and compassion for those in need. Verse 37 tells us she becomes sick and dies. This woman who is a disciple of Christ and helping many becomes sick and dies and they take her body and they wash it and they lay her body in an upper room getting ready for a funeral. Common practice in Judaism was to wash and anoint the body in preparation for burial. Now Lydda is near Joppa, 11 miles away. The disciples, verse 38, the disciples hear that Peter is over at Lydda and they send a message. They send two messengers and they say, come now, drop everything. Please come now. Urgent request. Did she need urgent care? No, she was dead. But we want you here now. So verse 39, Peter goes and he gets there and they take him into the room where her body is laying. And all the widows that she had helped are gathered in the room. And they're crying, they're weeping. They're hurting over the death of their friend. And they're showing the clothes that she had made for them. And Peter says in verse 40, he says, Everybody out, 
sends them all out of the room, and he gets on his knees and he prays to God. Peter couldn't heal Aeneas by himself. Peter can't do anything for Dorcas by himself. He calls on God. He submits himself to God. He's asking for direction. He's asking for what God wants him to do. And after he prays, he says to the body, he's speaking to a corpse now, he says to the body, Tabitha, arise. He uses her name, just like he did with Aeneas' name. He uses his name. It's important to know and use people's names. And Peter is now speaking to a corpse. Reminds me of Ezekiel 37. God says, I want you to go out to a valley, a valley of dry, dead bones, skeletons all over the place of people. I want you to go out there and I want you to speak to the bones and he does and there's a rattling sound and you've got bone on bone (laughs) if you've got knee problems you know what I'm talking about okay and there's these skeletons just standing there in the middle of the valley and then God says to speak again to them and God puts breath in them and 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 flesh and Right before their eyes, they are standing on their feet, a big army of people. God just brings them to life. This reminds me of that. Because Peter is, is speaking to a corpse. It's like Jesus did when he said, Lazarus, come forth. Dorcas opens her eyes. Tabitha, arise. Gazelle, arise. Get up. She's alive. She was dead. Now she's breathing. Her heart's beating. Got a pulse. She's alive. And she sees Peter, and she sits up. A little progression here. She opens her eyes. She sees Peter and sits up. It's a resurrection from the dead. Verse 41, he gives her his hand and helps her up the lady that was dead and now alive they had it ready for her funeral and now she's raised from the dead and then verse 43 Peter calls everybody in come on in everybody everybody come back in he presents her to them alive can you just hear it and now for the very first time as a resurrected person Dorcas He wanted everyone to know the good news. You can't hide this. I remember when I was a high schooler, my grandfather died, and I was very close to my grandfather. I was at the funeral, and I remember seeing his open casket. And I remember it hurting so bad. You know what I'm talking about. You know what it feels like to lose a loved one. And I remember thinking to myself, if only he could just kind of come out of that casket and be alive and talk to me. I wasn't a believer. I just, I just wanted my grandpa back. Can you imagine all the friends of Dorcas? Peter comes in. They're weeping. They're remembering her life. Here's, what we, here's these clothes she made us. Imagine what a comfort she was to the widows who had lost their husbands. 
And now she's alive. She's standing there with them. She's talking to them. She's eating food. She's walking around. And God gives her, we don't know how many years, but some more years of life. You know, there are nine specific times in the Bible of people being raised from the dead. 1 Kings 17, 22. Elijah raises the widow's son. 2 Kings 4, 35. Elisha raises the son of the Shunammite woman. 2 Kings 13. This is a great one. This is wild. They're burying a dead guy. And they throw him in Elisha's grave. And when his body touches Elisha's bones, boom, he rises up. He comes back to life. Like, too much, you know, too crowded in there or something. I don't know. It's like, wow, the power of God. Those are the three Old Testament times when someone came back to life. New Testament, Luke chapter 7. Jesus raises a widow's son back to life. Luke chapter 8. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. This week in your home groups, you're going to be looking at how Jesus Raising Jairus' daughter is similar to the raising of Dorcas. John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. And obviously the most notable resurrection ever, the most important resurrection ever, that of Jesus Christ from the dead, all four Gospels record that. Over in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, you've got Paul raising Eutychus from the dead. There's a teenager who's sitting in a window as upstairs as Paul is preaching and he falls asleep and he falls out the window and dies. And Paul goes down and brings him back to life. And then here in Acts chapter 9, Dorcas is raised from the dead. And you've got to ask, why? She's a believer. She loved Jesus and she died Now she's in the presence of the Lord. Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Nobody wants to come back. Why? Why was she raised to new life? It was for the sake of other people. It was for the sake of all the people that were going to hear that she got raised from the dead and hear her testimony of it and get saved because they heard the gospel of the grace of God in Christ and believed. She was raised for the benefit of others. Gospel growth. Many believe as a result. Nine resurrections in the Bible, plus that's not counting the many that were resurrected at Christ's resurrection, Matthew 27, 52, and 53. But Dorcas is raised from the dead, and verse 42 tells us everyone hears about it. Of course they do. And many believe in the Lord. Praise God. Good news travels fast, and the gospel is got speedy feet at that point. Dorcas and Aeneas are walking billboards for Jesus Christ. Believers, that's what you are, by the way. You're walking billboards of Jesus Christ. You were dead in your sins, and God made you alive. You're a walking billboard for Jesus Christ. They were these walking billboards for Jesus Christ. 
get the combination of Dorcas's beautiful, practical gift of mercy. You've got Peter's speaking gifts of evangelism and preaching. You've got God authenticating the message being preached. You've got such fertile soil there for the gospel to take root in human hearts. And that's what happened. Think about it. Peter says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And people saw and believe in Jesus now. You've got Dorcas coming back to life and people saw and they come to faith in Christ. And then verse 43, just a kind of a um, summary statement. Luke wants us to know what Peter was up to and he says, Peter stays in Joppa for many days with Simon the Tanner. And that might sound just like, okay, well, just let's go on to the next thing, but this is very significant. It is a big deal that Peter stays with a tanner. Someone who takes animal skins and hides and and tans them to be used for useful purposes to help people. Very big deal because being a tanner was a despised trade in Judaism. One rabbi said, woe to him who is a tanner. Peter's no tanner, he's a fisherman. He's by the seashore in Joppa. I'm sure the fishing was a plenty. But Simon that he was staying with was a tanner. Tanners were thought immoral because in those days women worked in the trade and they, that, was, that was looked down upon. People were repulsed by the stench of working with rotting animal carcasses. You can understand that. Just leave a chicken carcass out for too long. You know how that is. People were repulsed by this job and, and the Jews thought they were impure because they touched dead bodies. Now next week we're going to see why this is here. Because in chapter 10, God gives Peter a vision that opens the door for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. And Luke is setting the stage for that with this comment, Peter stays for many days with Simon the Tanner. He's letting us know that God is freeing Peter of his prejudice. I hope God is freeing you of your prejudice. What is Jesus doing in this passage of Scripture? Good question, right? What is Jesus doing here? Well, he's very clearly healing people. He's very clearly saving people. And he's very clearly using people as his instruments of grace. Jesus is healing people. Aeneas was healed based on nothing he did. Dorcas was brought back to life not because she was devoted to good works and helped widows, but because it was the will of God. And and you'll notice in the Bible... Miracles do not automatically lead to conversions and church growth. You can just look at Paul's experience in Lystra in Acts 14 to see that. The Bible also tells us that the lack of miracles doesn't hinder or prevent conversions or church growth. You can just look at Paul's experience in Antioch in chapter 13 to see that. Miracles are caused by Jesus' power. And conversions are caused by Jesus' power. That is the common link here. Now, sometimes Jesus chooses to heal miraculously. 
Sometimes Jesus doesn't heal in spite of people's faith or their prayers. There's a lot of false teaching that says that if you're a believer, you should expect God to heal you of everything that ails you on earth. That's false teaching. Sometimes God doesn't heal people here on earth. The dichotomy in the Bible is not between people that have been healed and people that haven't been healed. It's between believers and unbelievers. The nature of being an unbeliever is that you are in a constant state of alienation towards God, uh, animosity towards God. The nature of being a believer is that you have come to faith in Christ. You have placed your faith in Christ based on his finished work on the cross in shedding his blood for your sins. A believer is reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer, you can expect ultimate healing. You cannot biblically expect healing for everything here on earth but you can expect ultimate healing because our hope in christ is the anchor for our soul our life on earth isn't the anchor what we see isn't the anchor our hope in jesus christ who is preparing a place for us and until we go to be with him or he comes again whichever comes first we are in that realm of hope that we cannot see Why are some healed and some not healed? It is according to the sovereign will of God. God knows. And here, Aeneas being healed and Dorcas being raised was so that people would come to faith in Christ. Jesus is saving people. Think about the fact that Aeneas was paralyzed. Think about the fact that Dorcas was totally dead and you have a picture of the helplessness and hopelessness of sinners apart from christ ephesians 2 1 tells us we were dead in our sins we heard some great testimonies last week about that the bible tells us we were without hope and without god in the world now you might have everything money could buy you might have the best house the best education the best job the best family but if you don't have jesus you have nothing there are so many people paralyzed by sin paralyzed by unbelief paralyzed by false teaching paralyzed paralyzed by worldly pleasures and indifference and prejudice and hatred there are so many things that paralyze people and keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3 shows us a picture of sinners as God sees them. None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. 
that is a picture of you and I outside of Christ. That is our helpless, hopeless condition, alienated from God. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So if you've come to faith in Christ, you're securing Christ because you're believing in His shed blood. You're believing in His righteousness, His goodness, not yours. You're not saved because you have been good, but because God is good, and He sent the only one who is truly good to take all of our badness upon Him so that we could experience His goodness. So we could know Him. God causes those who are dead in sin to be alive in Christ. They respond in faith, and they are they are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's reserved in heaven for all who believe, who through Christ are believers in God. So their faith, your faith, and hope are in God. Not in what you can do, not in what you can achieve, not in how good you can be. Jesus is saving people. We also see that Jesus is using people who've been born again to a living hope as conduits of God's grace, as instruments of his grace. Think about Peter's ministry. His ministry was not all about praying and preaching. People were involved. Sometimes large crowds here, very personal ministry with with individuals, Aeneas and Dorcas. He didn't just pray and preach. He spent time with people. He was concerned for their needs. And the reason why is because he was devoted to Jesus. When you're devoted to Jesus, you want to tell as many people as you can about Jesus. You want to introduce them to Jesus. You want to tell them about Jesus. Wherever God sends you as his agent of grace. In your home, in your neighborhood, in your office, your classroom, wherever, wherever, wherever God puts you. Let's get intensely realistic here. You live somewhere. You are called to be salt and light in the world. In one sense, yes, everyone is your neighbor. But those you live closest to have a special connection to you because they know who you are. They observe you. They know more about you than you know. They observe you most often. Even if you're just coming and going. We talk about your super eight, your closest neighbors, coworkers, friends, classmates, teammates. Who has God put right in your path? You affect them. They think something of you. You have a reputation with them. And you are Christ's representative on that block, in that complex, in that neighborhood. Because as a Christ-centered community intent on proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and sacrificially serving Jesus, we need to be good neighbors. We should be the best citizens. Of, of, of the earthly setting in which we live. To shine the light on the gospel as the gospel shines brightly through us. Peter reached out in personal ministry to Aeneas and Dorcas and everyone else who watched. I want to give you nine ways to be a good Christian neighbor or teammate or classmate friend 
First, find your identity in Christ alone. The Bible's really clear about that. Colossians 3, set your minds on the things above, not the things on earth. Christ, when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you'll be revealed with him in glory. So don't find your identity in, in your possessions or in having as much than or more than or less than your neighbors. Find your identity in Christ alone. Be rooted in Christ. Be anchored in Christ. And then number two, pray for opportunities and boldness. The Christians in the book of Acts prayed that they would speak the word of God with boldness, and then they did. God answered that prayer. Paul says in Ephesians 6, pray for me that I would speak boldly the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. He is praying as he is in prison that he would preach the gospel boldly. I think pride keeps us from boldly identifying ourselves as followers of Christ. We know that once they find out, and especially if we've waited too long, they will see how inconsistent our lives are. But that's a great reminder for us to trust Jesus and to be honest about our life. And honest about it's God who changes hearts, we don't change our own. Number three, know and use their name. It's important to know and use people's names. Notice how Peter used Aeneas' and Dorcas' names. Number four, find common ground with them. Start conversations. Ask good questions like, how long have you lived here? Oh, 40 years? Oops, you know. Um, tactfully act, ask them about their work, their, their school, their kids, their hobbies, their pets. Number five, offer and ask for help. We like to give help, we don't like to ask. Titus 3.14 says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We love to do that, but we don't like to ask for help. Ask your neighbors for help. And number six, be present physically and mentally. You know when you're not, you're present physically, but not mentally. Everyone knows. You want to be present physically? Uh, redo your yard, you'll meet your neighbors. Go on walks, you'll meet your neighbors. Mow your lawn, you'll meet your neighbors. Mow their lawn, <laughs> you'll meet your neighbors. Don't give them your weeds, just mow their lawn. Keep your eyes up and open. Oh, I'm just weeding my lawn. I don't want to look at you. I don't like you. Well, maybe you have fences to mend. Maybe literal ones, maybe relational ones. Sometimes mending the literal fence might help you mend the relational one. And then number seven, find multiple ways to bless them. Prayer, care, share, encouraging words, purposeful acts of kindness. Galatians 6 says, don't, don't go weary in doing good. Do good to all people. And number eight, know and share the gospel as soon as possible. If you've waited a long time, it's going to be harder to, to break the ice. We've got gospel cards in the seats in front of you. Use that. Well, when you love Jesus the most, you want to introduce people to Jesus. And you really don't want them to be shocked that you're a Christian because of the way you've acted towards them. But that might even be a way to build that bridge. You know, I'm really sorry for the way I've been to you as a neighbor, but I am a believer, and God's convicted me that, that I need to be more kind. Because you know what? Knowing Jesus makes you kind. And number nine, 
live your faith and speak it often. How can you do that? Well, express gratitude to God. Thank God publicly. Be honest about your life. They already know more about you than you know. They haven't moved away from you yet. They haven't been asked to be put in another class or another team. Let them get to know the real you. Take the opportunity to talk about how God has changed your life and is changing your life. Offer to pray for them. Remind them of truth like, you know, they're going through a a tough time. God knows and cares. Share things you're reading in the Bible. You'll be amazed at what God will do. To be amazed. Isn't it weird that we have to be taught how to be good neighbors? But Jesus teaches us how to be a good neighbor. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to lay down his life for us. Peter took a personal interest in people, in the well-being of others. God wants you to take a personal interest in the well-being of others and seek to bless them because he wants to use you as a conduit of his grace so that others be blessed and others will be saved. Thank you, Lord, that you heal and save and use your people in the process. My prayer is that we would all have eyes open to the many opportunities that you place in our path, even as we have seen today how the power of Jesus to heal and save is is seen, is manifested so clearly as as your people lovingly engage others with the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that the consistent focus is on you and not on us. The consistent focus is on Jesus and his power. Use us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.